Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Again, Romans chapter 10. We're studying through Romans, and we're finding ourselves at the end of chapter 10. Uh, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and here we are at the end of 10. It's one of those passages that, honestly, if you were to uh, announce to a group of seminary students, you can, you can pick from any passage in the Bible and prepare a sermon in the next month, this probably wouldn't be on the radar because this is hard. This is a very interesting and difficult to interpret section of Scripture, and yet it is glorious in its implications and in its applications. Now, we're going to look specifically in our study at verses 16 through 21, but I want to get a head start and cover a little bit what we did last week by beginning to read in verse 14. I'm going to sneak back up to the end of verse 13. How's that? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing by a specific word or message about Christ. But I say, surely, they've never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, and by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. From the beginning of the book of Romans, I've used an illustration that I hope that has kind of been traced in your mind, and it's that of an automatic watch. There are three kinds of basic watches. There are chronographs or the ones that batteries you know, drive um, the, the second hand and move the minute and the hour hands. And there are mechanical. Mechanical are ones that you just wind up. And then there are automatic watches. Automatic watches are similar to mechanical in that they, they, they need to be wound, but the idea is that inertia is used with some inner workings and a mainspring so that every time you move, it actually moves a, a mechanism that winds the watch. I'm wearing an automatic watch right now. It's very orange, but that's just between you and me. And it's every, I can hear it right now winding as, as I naturally move my arm. It wasn't very natural, but... As I naturally move my arm, it, it winds. I love automatic watches. I, I became entranced, entranced with it when I went to Switzerland and saw a, a watchmaker and how intricate and how detailed, what a marvel of engineering these things are. 
If you've ever seen the inside of one or maybe the back of one that's skeletized, it's got a clear window into one, you can see the intricate gears and springs and tiny screws and braces and bars and lugs and balances and bridges and on and on and on. There's so many different parts. That's kind of a picture of the book of Romans. As beautiful and complicated as the watch is, it still serves one primary function. That's to tell you what time it is. All of those gears, all of those parts work to tell you what time it is. Romans is like that. All of the intricate parts of, of Romans are looks at salvation. And, and at the end of the day, it's just about how you can be saved. What it means to know God through Christ. Yet still, to appreciate all the inner workings and gears and, and the way the, the gospel functions together is a wonder to behold. And that's what Romans is. And we found ourselves in Romans 9 through 11. These are three chapters in which Paul raises a question that he answers. The question is this. If God promised the old, in the Old Testament to the Jews that he would send them a Messiah who would redeem them, he would be their God, they would be his people, and one day he would give them the exact real estate in Israel that he promised to Abraham. And that hasn't happened. In fact, they've rejected Jesus as Messiah. They were being scattered about as Paul was writing to the, to the Romans. They were being dispersed, called the Great Dispersion. Well, was God lying does God have any credibility here? Why would we believe that God would keep his promise to us when it doesn't really look like he kept his promise to Israel? And Paul takes these three chapters and says, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. God is absolutely sovereign, but Israel is in the position that they are because they chose to not believe. Theologically, this is an interesting section because in chapter 9, he talks about the sovereignty of God and salvation. God chooses, God ordains, God predestines, God elects. He even says, I chose to harden the heart of Pharaoh. I'm the potter, you are the clay, says God. Don't question God. And yet here at the end of chapter 9, at the end of chapter 10, he comes back to man's responsibility to believe. Israel's problem wasn't God. Israel's problem was her ability to stay secure in her sins and reject and ignore the gospel. Now, what's interesting about that is that as true as that is for the nation of Israel, that becomes a paradigm, a, an example for anyone and everyone who would believe and who would not believe. Some Jews received Christ. Some still do but not the nation. Most of them are, are still in the category of the last verse of chapter 10, disobedient and obstinate. What we're going to do is we're going to weave in and out in this last part of Romans into talking about Israel and talking about everybody. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because that's exactly what Paul does. Look back at verse 11. He said, Whosoever... Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord. Right in the middle, verse 12, there's, there's really no difference between Greek or Jew. So I understand he's talking about Israel, but he can't help letting those lessons leak out to be paradigmatic or exemplary for everyone and looking at the personal responsibility that we all have to believe the gospel specifically about Israel, but these principles function universally for everyone. 
Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In two categories, the Jew first and also to the Greek. The rest of the book, he talks about Jews and Gentiles, but ultimately he talks about sinners who can become saved. Now, I remind you of this so we can approach these final six verses with the right perspective. Paul was talking again specifically about Israel's unbelief, but these words are really an anatomy of unbelief. If you want to open up disbelief or unbelief in a person's heart, you're going to find exactly what Paul's talking about here. So as we march through these last verses in this chapter, we're going to look at Israel's unbelief. Specifically, Israel's unbelief highlights three universal responsibilities to the gospel. Israel's unbelief, the specific, highlights three universal, that's everyone, universal responsibilities to the gospel. This first responsibility is this, receiving or to receive. Receiving. Verse 16 says, however, stop right there. Anytime you see therefore, however, but, and, you have to connect that to what's come before. However, now he's just talked about the fact in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That is great news. Anyone can respond to the gospel offer. This is the same Paul who said only God chooses who will believe. And so if you find yourself in Romans 9, 10, and 11, say, is God sovereign or is man responsible? And you say, well, I think, that, uh, I think Paul teaches both, but that doesn't make sense. You're probably understanding Paul. He does teach both side by side without any footnotes, any explanation. He just teaches them. And we would do well to follow suit. Anyone, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he gives us this uh, description of salvation in reverse order. Down to verse 16. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. However, they did not all heed Your Bible might say the good news is the word for gospel. They did not all listen to or heed or believe or receive the gospel. You need to know that not everyone who hears receives the truth that Jesus saves. If you've ever evangelized, you know that. If you've ever known a missionary who's gone out, you know that every missionary who goes doesn't automatically invoke a revival when they announce that Jesus is the Messiah. Not everyone heeds. They did not all heed the gospel. They did not all hear the good news, which means the gospel went out, specifically here to these Jews, vicariously anyone, and not everyone heeded it, literally received it. Then he does something interesting. He's talking about Jews. Now, if you've ever evangelized a Jew, which I, I think is one of our primary missions as, as the church of the living God, inevitably, you end up in what passage of Scripture? Isaiah 53. Do you not? Guess where Paul goes when his description of the Jews' belief and unbelief, he goes to Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report is verse 1 of Isaiah 53. Let me just read those first five verses for you. Who has believed our report or who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is 
the Messiah, Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Jesus didn't come with royal gowns and robes looking like the king of the, of the universe. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing remarkable about even the way he looked. Then he goes to the cross. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Now here's a question for you. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 was reading this text. And he read this before knowing about Jesus. And you know what his question was? Who's this about? He asked Philip. Remember Acts chapter 8? He's reading it out loud. And he says, Philip, do you know what this is about? Who is this talking about? Philip says it was talking about Christ, the Lord Jesus from Nazareth. Don't miss the implication for us. Just because people reject the gospel, Paul says, that doesn't mean that we've been unfaithful or that God has been unfaithful. It goes all the way back to Isaiah. Who has believed that report? Who has believed that prophecy? This is the divine insight into evangelism and missions that we need to have. There's no guarantee of fruit or success. God measures success by faithfulness. He doesn't measure success by fruit or results because those are up to him. He measures our success by our faithfulness. Not everyone will heed, we find out here. Not everyone will believe our report or our message. Many are called, few are chosen. Narrow is the gate, few there be that find it. Broad is the way, many there are that find it. And just for a moment, would you turn back over to Isaiah 6? Because this is a passage with which so many people are familiar, and yet I'm not sure that we go far enough to understand the full implication of what Isaiah is saying. You know Isaiah, he's, um, he's in a, a very down way because the king has just died, and God comes to meet him in the year of Isaiah 6.1. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He has this vision of God in the temple. Seraphim, those are angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. 
and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. That's usually where most people who read this passage stop. Such a sweet passage. He sees the Lord. He's overwhelmed by this vision. He, he backs up and says, I need to be clean. And his palate is clean from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The Lord cleanses his tongue, which was indicative of what was in his heart. And then the Lord says, well, verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I need a preacher. This is interesting because no one else is in the temple, as far as we know, this is a vision except Isaiah. And the Lord asks a rhetorical question that could only be addressed to Isaiah. Who, hmm, wonder who, whom shall I send and go for us? And then Isaiah says, well, here I am, send me. We love that great missions passage. Take up an offering. Send people overseas. It's great, except look at the next verse. God said, go tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people unresponsive, insensitive, heavy, and dull. Their ears are dull. Their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. God commissioned Isaiah to go preach to people who would not respond. And still he called Isaiah to go preach to people who would not respond. Amazing. That comes to bear here. Now back to Romans chapter 10. Just because there's a lack of revival or great response to evangelism or missions does not mean there's no faithfulness. Look at the text here, by the way. He says, Who is um, who's believed our report? But specifically, the, the, the word he uses, as I said, is, is gospel. They don't all heed. They don't all receive the, the gospel, the good news. And God said, from the days of Isaiah, that's going to be the case. Not everyone's going to believe the message or receive it. Then he gives this little footnote in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes by, your text might say the word of God. That's, uh, I think the old authorized said that. Probably the better rendering of this is the, the, it's logos and Christos. A specific word about Jesus. A specific message. This is the gospel. And we've said this week after week over and over. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. It's not just a way that God does things. It's, it's the living, incarnate, breathing, dying, resurrected Lord Jesus. That's the message. And he says so here. Hearing comes by the word, the message about Christ, of Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. That's the good news. Romans 1.1. The gospel of God, Romans 1.3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It's all about faith in him. Remember the Paul's... Um, Discussion with the Ephesian elders. He comes down the coast of Asia Minor. He stops in Miletus. He meets with the Ephesian elders. The Acts 20, he calls them over. 
When he had come to them, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, this is Acts 20, verse 18, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials, which came to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying, listen, both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. His message was about the God-man, the man from Nazareth, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into the earth and their words to the ends of the world. This is a quotation from Psalm 19.4 about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth before the gospel had been finished. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll look at this verse and say, hang on. Paul, I don't think that verse means what you think it means. Was David really talking about this? If you go back to Psalm uh, 16, David is actually, Psalm 19, rather, Psalm, uh, David is actually talking about natural revelation, not, not the gospel. How, how then can Paul, with any legitimacy, use Psalm 19 as a way to explain the gospel going out into the, all the earth? Let me ask you another question. In what way and what right do the New Testament writers have to use the Old Testament? Have you ever read a a passage of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament and then gone back and read the Old Testament passage and gone, I do not think this verse means what you think it means. Has that caused you any heartburn? It has me. I remember looking back at verses and going, this is the problem. Before I knew that this was a raging problem in theological debates, I thought, has anyone seen this before? I may be the only one. Maybe I'm one of the two witnesses from Revelation. Who knows? I'm very special. I've seen this. How, how does this work out? Why is this of concern? Because Paul uses David's words to speak of the preaching and spreading of the gospel, but that's not what David was talking about when he wrote the psalm. How do we deal with this? What do we do with this? Well, we've seen this over and over in different places in Romans where Paul does not seem to quote the Old Testament in the exact way the author wrote it or said it. Now, part of that is because he's quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And there's some little wording differences that the Spirit of God uses and canonizes in the New Testament. That, that's, that's easy to see. The bigger question is when you look at the Old Testament passages and you say, that's not what this is talking about. What do I do with this? Let me say, first of all, that the theological problem of the New Testament use of the old is not one I'm going to solve in five minutes, but I'm going to try to give you some traction on it, okay? There's no easy answer, and each text must be interpreted in its own context and in its own light. Sometimes the passage is used as an analogy, sometimes as an illustration, sometimes as a fulfillment. In Galatians, sometimes even as an allegory. But listen, please listen. Not all New Testament uses of the old are an interpretation of the Old Testament. 
It's a use of the Old Testament. Some are simple, simply used because of their familiarity. Now, I want to try to illustrate this if I can. Most everyone has seen The Wizard of Oz. Several lines from that movie have made their way into our language, into our folklore, into our colloquial way we speak to one another. And after uh, one of them, probably more than any other, is right after Dorothy. I used to be terrified of this movie, by the way. When I was a kid, I would watch The Wizard of Oz, and those monkeys would come out, and I would run to the other end of the house. Chicken, call me what you want, but those are freaky little animals anyway. Remember, Dorothy shows up in Oz, and it goes from black and white to color, and, and she's walking there, she's looking around, and she's holding her dog, Toto, and she says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Right. I used to use that phrase a lot until I moved to Kansas. Um, <laughs> but the phrase has come a, become a kind of a colloquial saying. It really means we're no longer in that quiet, familiar, comfortable surrounding anymore, little puppy. It's an illustration that's become to mean we're outside our comfort zone. We're not in Kansas anymore. I'm outside my comfort zone. And people use it like that. Now, when you use that phrase with each other, are you thinking, Dorothy, black and white, color, Toto, walking, little munchkins, munchkins that sing. Is, is that what you're thinking about? No, no. You understand that it, it has a meaning that's just colloquial. It's not comfortable anymore. The quotation works because we all know the movie. It communicates the point very well. This scripture passage works because his people that he was writing to knew it and he could use it. It's not an interpretation. He's just using it to illustrate and explain his point. Or think of the phrase, how many times have you said, it's Greek to me? Well, where does that come from? If you're smart, and I know you are, you'll remember that it's uh, from 1559 in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. How many of you actually knew that? Okay, we'll keep going. I didn't either. So, uh, there's a conversation where a conspiracy is being told in Greek, and the writers are in Latin. And um, Cassius says, "Did Cicero say anything?" And and Casca uh, says, "Ah, he spoke in Greek." Cassius, to what effect? Casca uh, says, "Nay, I, I tell you that uh, I, I, I couldn't tell." But those that understood him smiled at one another and shook their heads. But for mine, my own part, it was Greek to me. They were conspiring against him in another language right in his face, and he, he didn't understand. It's Greek to me. Now, we take that, and when we say it's Greek to me, we use a principle that we're applying in a current context, but we're not trying to go summon every context of Shakespeare when we say it, are we? Now, you do the same thing with the New Testament, and you might not even know it. How many of you ever, times have you ever said, well, he's going to reap what he sows? You know where that's from? Galatians 6. You know what it's about? Probably not if you're using it that way. It just means that righteousness will reap righteousness and the flesh will result in judgment. It has two sides of the coin, good and bad. We usually just use it as bad. I mean, we rarely see a, a, a young kid reading his Bible, oh, he's going to reap what he sows. It's usually a negative thing, right? But... What, what I'm, all I'm saying is this so familiar 
that we, we, we use it to, to communicate a point. That's what's happening here. He's using familiar language. Doug Moo says this about this passage and this principle. Quote, Paul and other New Testament writers often use, the Old Testament, use Old Testament language. They know that their readers will understand it, and the application of the language often helps them to perceive the situation in a new light. Thus, here in Romans 10.18, Paul quotes Psalm 19.4, not because he thinks that this special text speaks directly about the preaching of the gospel to Israel. Rather, he quotes it because the words would awaken echoes in his readers' minds that would lend force to his assertion. That's a great insight. He adds this, We need to realize that Paul does not always quote the Old Testament to prove a theological point. He sometimes sometimes uses the language of the Old Testament to express a new truth. And here he borrows the language about God's universal revelation in nature to assert that God has revealed his special purpose in the gospel to Israel in general. You understand what he's doing there? Now, I'm not going to try to pretend that that's a simple explanation that will cover every Old New Testament use of the Old. But at least here you understand what Paul is doing. He's not interpreting it in its original context or as its authorial intent intended. He's using it to illustrate his point. Not everyone who receives believes. That's the point. Israel's unbelief highlights the responsibility that we receive. Secondly, Israel's Unbelief highlights the responsibility to the gospel in understanding. We have to understand. Now, these next two are are, are more brief. We've already laid the ground. Verse 19, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, he's been leaning on the psalmist, on David, on Isaiah. He'll come back to Isaiah. Now he's going to come to to Moses. Moses will say, back quoting Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, And by a nation without understanding, I will anger you. He reaches back to the Old Testament. Listen to this in context. Deuteronomy 32, 21. They made me jealous with what is not God. What? They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Ah, now we see what's going on. This idolatry. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God will use the salvation of Gentiles to make Jews jealous. I still remember sharing Christ with a, with a man who was Jewish and trying to explain to him that we don't believe in a new God. We believe that the ineffable tetragrammaton, yod Hey, wow Hey, these four Hebrew letters that, are, that the Jews won't even speak, we say Yahweh, was the Old Testament I am. Sometimes it's Jehovah in, your, in, your, in some of your Bibles that Yahweh, I said, Yahweh is, and he didn't even like me saying the word. They actually, he, he said, he just says G blank under, underneath the blank, like a space, and D so that he doesn't even say God. I mean, he was that reverent of the word. I said, look, Yahweh, the Old Testament God, has become a man, and he's Jesus. And he just said, this is what he said to you, you would not talk about my God that way. He was jealous of his God that I would speak of that God being Jesus. That's exactly what's going on here. They think they own the rights to God. And God became a man and offered himself to them and they turned away. Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold and says, 
I was found by those who did not seek me, and I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. It's coming from Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. There, there it says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. These were the Gentiles. And permitted to be found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation who did not call my name. Praise God that that was in the plan. He's telling these Jews, you need to understand that your Bible told you, the Old Testament prophets and the, the law told you, quoting Deuteronomy and Isaiah, told you this was going to happen. You didn't understand it? Know your Bibles, he's saying. The point is that Israel should have known their own scriptures. That the inclusion of the Gentiles was a part of God's plan. And there's nothing we should strive for more as believers than to understand our scriptures so that we can see them perfectly fulfilled in the Nazarene, the Lord Jesus. We can ask ourselves, do we know our Bible and do we understand? So there's a human responsibility to receive the gospel, illustrated by Israel, to understand the gospel, as illustrated by Israel. Third, repenting, to repent. Verse 21 says, Israel didn't turn, they didn't repent, they didn't turn from their sin, they stayed in the way that they were. But as for Israel, he says, now he goes back to Isaiah 65.2. He did 65.1 in verse 20. Now he says 65.2 in verse 21. All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. What are these people about? What are they thinking? What's their problem? Listen to the the quotation from Isaiah. Isaiah 65.2. I've spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Who walk in the way which is not good, listen, following their own thoughts. Idolatry and intuition. That's what he summarizes it. Worshiping anything but God and following our own thoughts as intuitively right as opposed to Scripture. In Acts chapter 7, there's this horrific and beautiful scene at the same time of, of Stephen. He's preaching a sermon. He says to these Jews, Acts seven fifty one, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. He's saying exactly what Paul and Isaiah said. You are doing just as your fathers did. They were doing it on Isaiah's day. Then he says this, listen to, listen to Stephen, to these Jews. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. You received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. You didn't understand it. You didn't repent and turn. Instead of thanking Stephen for telling them the true condition of their heart and repenting, they picked up rocks and crushed his skull. Stoned him to death. 
what's the point here? What's going on here? Israel did not, and for the most part, has not a nation. Jewish believers have, but as a nation, they've been disobedient and obstinate. It's the same thing that Jesus said over and over and over. This all goes back to verse 16. Look, look at the phrase there. They did not all receive or heed. They didn't all do They didn't receive it. Some did. They didn't all receive it. Israel remains disobedient and obstinate, and God remains reaching out with an outstretched hand saying, believe. Look again at verse 11. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Look at verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. They are under the judgment of God, but no more so than any Gentile who is lost in his sin and can be rescued by the same grace of God. God's hand remains outstretched. Nowhere does this show up more than in the words of Jesus. I just... This is just such a sad moment in the life of our Lord. He's probably sitting up on the Mount of Olives looking down over the, um, the eastern wall of Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather children, your, your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under, under her wings. But you were unwilling Israel was responsible connect this at the end of 10 back with chapter 9 because that's specifically talking about the remnant that God will save in, in Israel also in the world only those who he chooses will respond only those who he predestines will, will respond only those he's called and elect he chose one twin over the other before they had even been born or done anything right or wrong. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh, absolute sovereignty. And yet he says at the end of nine and here at the end, whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. If you don't believe, it is completely your responsibility. That's his point. No one will ever go the judgment and say, I will not go to heaven, God, because of you. It will all be because of us. Human responsibility. It's pretty dark with respect to Israel. And remember, these three chapters are telling us God's credibility is still intact, even though it looks like the Messiah thing didn't work. We're left at the end of chapter 10 saying, he's outstretched his arm. They're obstinate. They're, they're disobedient. This is not good news. So Paul understands this is where we're going in our next study. Verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Is this so bad that he has outstretched his arms to Gentiles and left the Jews? You have your chance and now we're going to walk away? May it never be. And then in chapter 11, 
we are going to lay some much-needed groundwork for the fact that God is not done with Israel. I know where chapter 12 is. It's after chapter 11. And I know that chapter 12 to chapter 16 has some incredible practical application, just overwhelming, you know, do this, don't do that. Don't miss the application here. God is speaking so loudly in our ears saying, you are responsible just like those Jews. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you understand who he is? That Yahweh God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ in bodily form? That he lived a perfect life? That he suffered a tragic execution on the hand, behalf of the Romans and the Jews who conspired against him? That he, he died so dead that he was buried dead for three days and rose from the grave alive and is alive today at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for the saints? Do you, do you believe that? Will you believe that? Will you call on the name of the Lord? Have you? And if you have, do you understand what you've received and understand that it causes us to repent? This is the deep end of the theological pool and God is intending for us to understand in order to live and respond better, not to bore us with details of ethnic Israel. God's hand is still outreached, outstretched. I hope you have a hold of it.